This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Before I get into the intro of this episode, I need to let the three of you currently listening know that this month is when overtime hell begins at my job. I've been there eight and a half years now, and I think we've had one year where we didn't work any overtime until January. This means either I'm going to have to pre-record and bang these out even faster than I already do, or I'm going to be skipping a week or two. I know I have a loyal listener in Virginia who downloads new episodes as they come out, and I don't want to make you wait forever, but please understand. I'll be working 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, from today until whenever we run out of shit to do. Could be January, could be April. It's a gamble, and it's different every year. I will do my best to prioritize my murder stories, but don't abandon me if I'm not consistent through the next little while. Much love to you and drive safe in whatever snow you get where you're at. A few episodes ago, we talked about Maryland. That episode ended up being mostly cases from Baltimore, as that city is a shithole. My apologies to any of you fine people who may be living in Baltimore, but why the fuck haven't you moved yet? Today, we're headed to another state with a city that's known for crime. Luckily for you, and I guess for me as well, there are a handful of odd cases from Michigan that aren't just shootings in Detroit. The only thing I know about Michigan is that Steven Crowder is from there. And there's a lake. Maybe more than one lake? I don't know. I've never been, and I have no intention of going anywhere near Michigan. If you look up Democrat cesspit in a dictionary, you'll see it. At one point in time, they did actually have the death penalty. I was surprised to see that their list of executed people has just one more person than Alaska. There's only been one execution since Michigan became a state in 1837. Notably, they were also the first non-death penalty state to overturn a death sentence since 1988. So grab a bulletproof vest, a fishing pole, and a hockey stick. Today we're venturing to the Great Lakes state, and depending on where we end up, you might need all three. Here in Utah, we have a city called Tooele. It's about an hour's drive outside of Salt Lake, a little bit southwest. We have our fair share of weird town names. Somewhere down south, there's a town called Mexican Hat. Fruit Heights is another one that doesn't make any sense to me. But Tooele, and you non-Utahns wouldn't be able to pronounce that one properly if you read it on paper, gets its name from the Swedish settlers who founded it. New York, at one point, had an extremely high population of both Irish and Italian immigrants in it. And the Midwest, well, they have a lot of Germanic and Slavic heritage. You know, before I started looking into Michigan crimes, I was honestly dreading this one. I was expecting Baltimore 2.0, but it's proving to be a hell of a lot more interesting than I could have ever imagined. Anthony Chebatoris was born on May 10, 1898, in Suvalki. This city was a predominantly Lithuanian area of the Russian Empire and lies in modern-day Poland. His father Michael moved to the U.S. in 1900, followed by his wife Victoria and their two sons. Michael got a job as a coal miner in an unincorporated area of Pennsylvania known as Treveskin. Their family grew rapidly from two kids to seven. Anthony Chebatoris stayed in school through 8th grade and worked as a laborer for a brief time before he moved to Detroit in 1909. His first job outside of Pennsylvania was a chauffeur. I don't know about any of you, but I think it would be cool as fuck to have a Lithuanian-Polish guy drive me around. Chebatoris married a 17-year-old young woman named Catherine Boyd on March 30, 1920, after finding out that she was pregnant. They'd go on to have a daughter named Vera, keeping it Slavic. I like that. Some people get their shit together so they can take care of their families, but not this guy. 
Just four months after getting married, Chebatoris was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 20 years in prison. This isn't where our story ends, though, don't worry. This is Michigan. If you do the crime, you don't die. You don't serve all your time. All you get is a slap on the wrist. He was let out on parole after six and a half years. He got another chance to do right by his family. Chebatoris was only out of prison for less than a year before getting arrested for violating the Dyer Act in Kentucky. Been a while since I threw some legalese at you, hasn't it? The Dyer Act was a law authored by Leonidas Dyer that made transporting stolen cars across state lines a federal crime. This man was a well-known civil rights activist, a war hero, and someone who wanted reform. In today's time, he'd probably be called a Nazi by the left. He did a lot of good during his time as a Missouri congressman. He introduced an anti-lynching bill in 1918, which was defeated by filibusters. Any guesses whose fault that was? Definitely couldn't have been the white Southern Democrats. Definitely not. He also drafted a law that would prevent banks from charging excessive interest rates on loans in Washington, D.C. Though his law would only really affect those in D.C., he urged other states to pass similar ones to help out the poor. I really fell down a rabbit hole here, so I'll cut it short with one last interesting fact about Leonidas Dyer and the things he accomplished. Back in 1916, the U.S. Postal Service used vacuum tubes to transport mail. Think like the tubes in Futurama that people use to get around. Dyer asked a Senate committee to extend the tubes in the St. Louis area from two to five miles to better serve his community. And he also voted against prohibition. This guy was fucking awesome. He died in December of 1957 at the age of 86. Back to Anthony Chebatoris, though. He's who we're here for. Where did we leave him? Oh yeah, he stole a car and drove it across state lines into Kentucky and was thrown back into prison. He was forced to serve the remainder of his armed robbery sentence. While locked up, he and another inmate, John Jack Gracie, planned an escape from Jackson State Prison. Someone must have overheard them conspiring because they were transferred to Marquette Branch Prison in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Chebatoris got out of prison in December of 1935 and moved back home to Treveskin, Pennsylvania. Didn't take long for the police to come after him, though, for suspicion of assault and burglary. This guy apparently doesn't learn. Chebatoris hadn't seen his wife since 1920 and had never met his daughter. In 1937, he moved back to Detroit and got in touch with his old friend Jack Gracie, who was living in the nearby city of Hamtramck. The pair began plotting a bank robbery. The plan was to rob the Chemical State Savings Bank in downtown Midland. Gracie and Chebatoris knew that the bank would have plenty of cash thanks to the bi-weekly payroll deposit from Dow Chemical. In total, they'd be expecting about 75 grand. In today's money, that's just over 1.5 million. Inflation really fucked us, huh? A robbery of this magnitude requires one of two things, a detailed plan or sheer brazenness. I don't think I need to tell you which direction the men went. Gracie entered the bank with a sawed-off shotgun at 11.30 a.m. and Chebatoris stayed by the door with a revolver. Gracie went to the bank president, Clarence McComer, and pushed the shotgun into his ribs, demanding the money. This 65-year-old man had balls of steel. He grabbed the barrel of the shotgun and pointed it downward while simultaneously pushing Gracie toward the door. At this point, Chebatoris shot the man in the shoulder. After hearing the commotion, the bank's cashier, Paul Bywater, came out to see what was going on. Chebatoris shot him in the back. Both of these men survived their wounds. Third Railify talked about an attempted robbery in some urban shithole that happened kind of recently, and resulted in one robber being shot to death by the person in the store and one getting away. It's another lesson in fucking around and finding out. This story has a bit of that too. Gracie and Chebatoris abandoned their robbery plans and drove away. On top of the bank, there was a dental practice. 
Dr. Frank Hardy owned the practice and used his hunting rifle to fire several shots at the getaway car. Men in the 30s were built different, or something, goddamn. One of the shots hit Chepatoris in the arm, another one hit Gracie in the leg. Their car slammed into a parked car, and the robbers got out to see where the shots were coming from. A truck driver named Henry Porter was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Chevatoris mistook his uniform for that of a police officer and shot him. He later died from his injuries. Gracie tried to steal a truck, but Dr. Hardy shot him in the head and killed him instantly. Chevatoris ran along some railroad tracks to get away, even attempted to carjack someone, but was eventually arrested. Unfortunately for Chebatoris, Congress passed a law in 1934 that made it a federal crime to rob a federally insured bank. In addition, the Federal Bank Robbery Act made killing someone during the commission or escape from this crime a federal offense. He was indicted by a federal grand jury on October 8, 1937 on assault and bank robbery charges. Probably thought he was going to get off somewhat easy, but... Henry Porter died of his injuries, and Chebatoris was charged with murder. He was the first person in the U.S. to be tried for murder under the new law. Trial began on October 26th, and Chebatoris was represented by two lawyers the judge had requested for him. These men were to work pro bono, or without pay, I'm assuming because their client was a broke-ass bank-robbing ex-convict. The prosecuting attorney made it very clear that the death sentence was on the table. You have been told that there is no capital punishment in Michigan. You are in federal territory here. The laws of Michigan do not apply. The federal law is that capital punishment may be inflicted. This is why you don't fuck around with the federal government. As you likely assumed, Chepatoris was found guilty of murder. The jury decided on a death sentence. After arriving back to his cell, the young man decided he wasn't going to give the government the pleasure of taking his life. He attempted suicide by slashing his wrists and throat with a razor blade. Guards got to him quickly, and he survived. After this, Chebatoris made no attempt to appeal, telling his attorneys, Why appeal? I'm only half a man now. The government might as well finish me off. A law passed in 1937 required that any federal execution was to take place in the state where the offense occurred, so long as that state allowed capital punishment. Michigan had long since abolished the death penalty, which made them unable to carry out this execution. The judge told reporters that Chebatoris wouldn't die in Michigan because federal capital punishment may not be affected in states where the death penalty is not operative. Illinois, oddly enough, decided to offer their services to the feds for this case. The U.S. Attorney General said he'd recommend either them or Indiana to carry out the execution. On November 10, 1937, the man who prosecuted Chebatoris found a little-known death penalty statute on the books that applied to treason against the state. Despite not executing anyone in over a century, Michigan was technically still allowed to do so. This satisfied the federal law requirement to put Chebatoris down in the state where his offense was committed. Governor Frank Murphy tried his best to stop the execution from taking place. Not out of mercy or for any real noble reason. He simply didn't want to be the guy in charge when Michigan executed someone for the first time in 108 years. He went so far to reach out to FDR, who was president at the time, asking for the sentence to be commuted to life in prison. There's a King of the Hill clip I want to throw in here, but I'll refrain. FDR consulted with the assistant attorney general and decided that there was no justification for commuting the sentence. It was decided, however, that it could be moved to another state if necessary. Anthony Chepatoris was executed by hanging on July 8, 1938. The day before his execution, he had been visited by his ex-wife Catherine, his daughter Vera, and his son-in-law Arthur. I struggle to understand why they came to visit him. As I recall, he'd never even met Vera. But whatever. Staring death in the face can make you do weird shit. Chepatoris turned away the prison chaplain when it was finally time. 
I can't find anything on his last words, but he refused a last meal. Our next case is very different from the first one, but it has some striking similarities. Marvin Gabrion Jr. was the fifth of six kids born to Marvin Sr. and Elaine Gabrion. Not much is available on his early life, but the few bits I've found indicate that this is yet another violence breeds violence situation. His parents were often gone from the home, leaving the older siblings in charge of the younger ones. Gabrion's sister Yvonne also recalled an incident where their mother threw a butcher knife at their father. I have a vague memory of my mom throwing a rollerblade at my dad once, and I never went on to kill anyone. But maybe I'm just one of those break the cycle people. On August 6, 1996, Wayne Davis and Mikey Gabrion invited 18-year-old Rachel Timmerman to a card game. She knew both men very well, as Mikey was a classmate and Wayne was a family friend. When they picked her up, Mikey's uncle Marvin was with them. At some point during the drive, Wayne and Mikey were forced out of the car. Marvin Gabrion then drove off with Rachel and raped her. Thankfully, he let her live, and the next day she reported what had happened to the police. Gabrion was arrested and charged with rape. Rather than just man up and admit to what he'd done, he took it to trial. Two days before the trial was scheduled to start, on July 3, 1997, Rachel told her parents that she was going on a date with a man she'd met at work. For whatever reason, she decided to take her 11-month-old daughter, Shannon, along. Bringing kids on dates is fucking miserable, no matter how old they are. What was she thinking? That would not have been a fun date. No judgment, I'm just genuinely curious why she didn't ask her parents to babysit. Shortly after she left, her father got a letter from Rachel stating that she planned to leave town and elope with this new boyfriend. In addition to her father, both the judge and prosecutor in the rape case received letters in Rachel's handwriting that said the rape allegations were fabricated and she wanted to drop the charges. Quick aside here, does this actually work? I once told a prosecutor that I wanted charges dropped and he told me no because it wasn't a good idea and tried to demean me in court in front of a judge because of it. I'll tell you that story eventually. But I find it hard to believe that you can just get charges dropped because you changed your mind. Rachel's family got another letter from her identifying the man she'd left with as Delbert. They believed these letters to be legitimate so nothing was investigated at this time. Rachel's body was found floating in Oxford Lake on July 5, 1997. Two fishermen found her chained to cinder blocks with her entire face wrapped in duct tape. Her cause of death was ruled as drowning. Police had a suspect almost immediately. Gabrion's house was searched and the keys to the padlock used to secure Rachel's body were found, along with concrete blocks that were similar to the ones found in the lake. The cops enlisted the help of Gabrion's nephew, Mikey, who showed them a campsite that his uncle used frequently. A tent was found along with chain, bolt cutters, duct tape, piece of a baby bottle, and a hair clip. This was all pretty damning on its own, but Gabrion's neighbors reported that he also had a handyman that he spent time with named John Weeks. Because John himself couldn't be located, police found his girlfriend and questioned her. She identified Gabrion as a man she knew as Lance, and claimed that John had recently disappeared with him. She had no idea how to contact either of them. In addition to this, the woman reported that she had once caught John on the phone with a woman named Rachel. Obviously concerned that John was cheating, she questioned him. He told her that he was doing a favor for Lance, who wanted to date Rachel. It is believed that John Weeks was the mystery man who Rachel went on a date with. Gabrion was a difficult man to find. He was on the run for two months before police caught wind that he was going to pick up a social security check from a post office in New York. The FBI got involved and ran surveillance on the location. When Gabrion left with his check, he was arrested. 
If you're wondering what happened to baby Shannon, well, no one really knows. She was never found. It's pretty much undisputed that Gabrion murdered her as well. I mean, what else would he have done with her? Crimes against children always strike a nerve with me, but to cause harm to a baby less than a year old. Holy fuck. That takes a special kind of monster. Wayne Davis, who you'll remember was a family friend of Rachel, disappeared in February of 1997. Much like Rachel, he was set to testify against Gabrion in the rape trial. The only thing missing from his house, besides the man himself, was his stereo system. Turns out that Gabrion had tried to pawn this stolen stereo. So, you know. Wayne definitely disappeared himself and didn't come to any harm at the hands of Marvin Gabrion. Wayne's body was found in Twinwood Lake, which was coincidentally another body of water located in the same national forest as the one Rachel was found in. John Weeks is also still unaccounted for. He was last seen with Gabrion in June of 1997. Combine that with the knowledge that John helped set Gabrion up with Rachel and, well, I don't need to explain. There is one more person who may have met their end with Gabrion's help. Robert Allen had given Gabrion a place to stay, but had disappeared in 1995. Gabrion cashed his social security checks and lived in his house until 1997. He was eventually convicted of social security fraud for the stolen checks, but has not been charged with anything in connection to the other disappearances. You can draw your own conclusions with this one. I sure as hell am drawing mine. Gabrion didn't go to trial for Rachel's murder until 2002. The prosecution called quite a few witnesses to testify about what a shitty person he was. Gabrion had a propensity toward violence. This included a handful of sexual assaults as well as some physical altercations. Two of these witnesses testified that their houses had been set on fire a day after they'd been in arguments with Gabrion. Another woman said that he had pointed a rifle at her and her two-year-old child. There was also a large pile of evidence admitted into the trial that implicated Gabrion in the disappearances of the three other men. This dude was unhinged. He tried to fire his lawyers and represent himself, but the judge wouldn't allow it because he was erratic and disruptive. At one point, this psychopath punched his defense attorney in the face in front of the jury. You tell me that this man is sane enough to represent himself. The defense used these outbursts to defend Gabrion. They claimed his behavior was due to a troubled childhood and several car accidents that had left him with brain injuries. Gabrion was convicted of Rachel's murder and sentenced to death. I know what you're probably thinking. We just went over this in the last case. Michigan is a Democrat utopia that's far too civilized to execute people. That was sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. Because Rachel was found on federal land in a national forest, the prosecution was allowed to seek the death penalty, which was definitely the right decision. During the trial, the defense argued that it was probable that he had killed Rachel outside of the forest and then just dumped her there. Not sure why he'd drown her somewhere else and then throw her in the lake, but alright. The jury found, beyond a reasonable doubt, that she died in the forest. I mean, that's fucking obvious. Gabrion appealed his conviction in 2011. His attorneys argued that jurors should have been informed that he'd been tried in state court where he was ineligible for the death penalty. His conviction was upheld, but his death sentence was overturned. Marvin Charles Gabrion is currently housed at the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. His death sentence was reinstated in 2013. The most recent update I can find is from 2022, and he still hasn't been executed. It's looking like he'll meet his end in a state other than Michigan, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. He's been in court trying to appeal and has also brought up that his mental state may make him incompetent and unable to be executed. 
We can only prove Gavrion's guilt in one of these crimes, but it's pretty clear from the circumstantial evidence that he's probably responsible for all of them. I decided to throw in this next case for a couple of reasons. It's brutal, it was committed by teenagers, and it happened on my 13th birthday. This is one of those crimes that has left me scratching my head and wondering what the fuck the state of Michigan was thinking when they sentenced these people. Teenagers are shitty. I don't think I need to tell you that. I was once a dumb teenager, but all of my rebelliousness was thrown into partying. I could hold my own back then, let me tell you. My younger self could drink my 29-year-old self under the table any day. Alexander Letkemen seemed like someone I would have hung out with back in the day. He played guitar in some local bands and was popular at his high school until he was charged with possession of alcohol in 2006. I'm telling you, my kind of people right here. Letkemen had a friend named Jean-Pierre Orlowitz who came from a well-known family that founded an auto parts supplier. I'm struggling with this dude's name. Not because I can't pronounce it, it's Polish. Those are relatively easy once you realize that there are Cyrillic equivalents to all their letters. What I'm having a hard time with is the fact that he's got probably the most French first name that exists with a super Polish last name. What the fuck is going on in the Midwest? These two delinquents went on to do something absolutely fucking horrendous. On the night of November 7th, 2007, they lured 26-year-old Daniel Sorensen into the garage of William Orlowitz. This was Jean-Pierre's 91-year-old grandpa, who was suffering from dementia and had no idea what his grandson was up to. Once inside the garage, Orlowitz stabbed Daniel in the back and slit his throat with a kitchen knife. After he was dead, Orlowitz used a hacksaw to cut his head off. The pair burned Daniel's hands and feet with a blowtorch to help conceal his identity. After this, they wrapped the pieces of his body in tarps and threw him into the back of Orlowitz's truck. A utility crew found Daniel's burned body in a new neighborhood near Maybury State Park a few days later. The truck was discovered parked at a store the day after the body was found, and Daniel's head was found 15 miles away in a park. According to Letkemen, this crime was committed because Daniel owed Orlowitz $400. And the only reason that Letkemen was even there was to help clean up after the murder. According to his neighbors, Daniel was a nice guy. I didn't know him, so I can't say for sure. But it's clear that he had a bit of a troubled past. He was a registered sex offender. Before you get all up in arms, think back to the main episode. Daniel wasn't out diddling toddlers. He'd slept with a 14-year-old girl when he was 17. Still kind of gross, but not nearly as bad as I was expecting. A man named Michael Martin had also taken out a protective order against Daniel, alleging that threats had been made on his life. Apparently, Daniel had also kept a hit list of girls that had rejected him in his pocket. This is all according to Michael Martin, so maybe take it with a grain of salt. I kind of get the impression that this guy owed Daniel money and was doing everything he could to get out of paying it back. Regardless of his past transgressions, Letkemen and Orlowitz had no real reason to kill Daniel. That $400 was not a motive, according to the police. This crime was a thrill kill. Letkemen cried in court and testified against Orlowitz in exchange for a plea deal. Michigan doesn't have the death penalty, but they don't seem to mind throwing people in prison for life. Alexander James Letkemen was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. The judge told him, You stood there and allowed a man's life to be taken. Nobody says anything to stop this murder, and you have to live with that. According to Letkemen's family, he was a genuinely good kid, and none of them could believe he'd have any involvement in a crime like this. Even Daniel's parents could see that he wasn't a monster. He was sucked into this vile act by his friend. The Sorensons said 
that they would support Letkeman getting parole if he got the opportunity. He will be 38 when he is eligible for parole. Jean-Pierre Orlowitz was given life without parole, plus an additional 10 years. Kind of a heavy sentence for someone whose crime was committed when they were 17, but I'm definitely not going to argue it. I support harsh sentences. In addition to murder, he'd been charged with mutilation of a corpse. The judge, who I believe is the same one from Letkeman's trial, told Orlowitz, I'm grateful you are going away for the rest of your life, because in my view, I believe you would have killed again. Orlowitz claimed that Daniel had pulled a gun on him and that the murder was self-defense. No one who saw the brutality of this crime would ever believe that. This was a cold-blooded murder. This kid looks so innocent. He looks like a typical high schooler. Then again, murderous teenage psychopaths usually do. I've talked a lot about my dance with alcohol throughout my life. From the age of 14, I was a heavy drinker. I'm talking a fifth of 100 proof peppermint schnapps in a night. Thanks, Mom. You really set me up to have a good future. I've spent more than my share of nights blacked out, passed out, hunched over garbage cans, and crying on kitchen floors. My most recent bout of being a drunk piece of shit was in July of this year. It was two different days within the same week, and let me be the first to say it was necessary. It was the worst week of my life so far, and alcohol was the only thing that was going to get me through it. I quit drinking a couple times. I would be looking at about five months sober when this comes out, but I, I had some birthday drinks because, you know, it was my fucking birthday. Don't judge me. I didn't get drunk and do something stupid. I've done a lot of wild shit while under the influence, but not once have I ever killed anyone. Stephen Simmons was a 50-year-old farmer and tavern owner living in Michigan during an economic boom. I'm talking, of course, about the 1830s. This area was changing from a rural wonderland into an urban shithole. The manufacturing industry was beginning to take off and settlers from all over the world were moving in. Simmons was a drunk, as I'm sure you assumed thanks to how I opened this case. He came home one night and tried to get his wife, Lavana to drink with him. She was obviously annoyed that her husband had woken her up and told him no. This didn't sit well with Simmons. Rather than just go eat pizza and watch Adult Swim like any normal alcoholic piece of shit, he punched Lavana in the stomach so hard that it ended up killing her. After a quick trial and testimony from his daughters, Simmons was sentenced to death. Stephen Gifford Simmons was executed by hanging on September 24, 1830. This was back in a time when public executions were common and often seen as a family event. They set up seats and some vendors even came to sell food and drinks. Parents would bring their kids in an attempt to deter them from a life of crime. Maybe we should bring back public executions instead of hiding them behind prison walls and not letting anyone witness them. Those who witnessed Simmons' execution were left with a bad taste in their mouths. He was the last person to be executed in the state of Michigan by the state government. There's nothing available on his last meal, but his last words were a church hymn. Show pity, Lord, O Lord, forgive. Let a repenting rebel live. Are not thy mercies full and free? May not a sinner trust in thee. Now, I know God hates pedophiles, but I'm not 100% sure how he feels about alcoholics who beat their wives. I think we can all agree that serial killers deserve the death penalty, especially those who rape. I don't have an 80s serial killer for you today, so the late 70s will have to suffice. I wonder what was in the water during the 70s and 80s. Oh, wait. Cocaine. Duh. Should have put that together sooner.
Donald Miller was born three days after Christmas in 1954 in Lansing, Michigan. He was one of three kids born into a middle-class family. The Millers were considered upstanding citizens and were known to take excellent care of their kids. Donald was a good student and an overall good kid. He played the trombone in the school's marching band and was also a youth minister at his church. I'm picturing a beefy Midwestern farm boy. I know that's not what he was, and his mugshot is, uh... Well, he looks like a 1930s pickpocket, to be honest. Like if meth was around back then? This, this guy looks like a tweaker. During his high school years, he met a girl named Martha Sue Young. The two would end up dating. After high school, Miller went on to attend Michigan State University, where he studied criminal law. He also worked part-time as a construction worker and continued his relationship with Martha. Miller proposed to Martha sometime in late 1976. She accepted, but broke up with him a couple months later. I wonder why. Can't find anything about that, but his later crimes are indicative of a fucking disastrous mental state. Three days after Martha dumped Miller, she agreed to meet up with him. It was New Year's Eve, 1976. Early in the morning of January 1st, 1977, Miller assaulted and strangled Martha to death. When she didn't come home, her parents called the police and an investigation was opened. Witnesses claimed that Miller had been the last person to see her alive, so he was brought in for questioning. He told the cops that he had been with her that night, but that he dropped her home around 2 a.m. Since there was no body, and therefore no indication of a murder, they had to let him go. Ten months would go by before two hunters found Martha's clothes and purse by a lake in Bath, Michigan. Her underwear was found folded up neatly under her clothes. What a fucking odd thing to do. Though it was a disgusting crime, Miller murdering his ex-fiancee makes at least a little bit of sense. He was pissed that she dumped him. It happens. On June 15, 1978, a 27-year-old woman named Marita Choquette was brutalized by Miller. She was an assistant editor at WKAR-TV at the time of her death. After stabbing her 17 times, Miller posed her body and cut off her hands. She was covered with cinder blocks and left on a property in a laden township. If I fucked that name up, I apologize. The Midwest has some absolutely ridiculous town names. Wendy Bush was a 21-year-old MSU student who had the misfortune of coming into contact with Donald Miller. I'm having a hard time finding specifics, but it's clear that Miller killed her. While looking into her disappearance, authorities found some witnesses that had seen Wendy with an unidentified white man on campus. The last woman confirmed to have been killed by Miller was 30-year-old Christine Stewart. She was a teacher who Miller had met while walking home from the auto shop on the college campus. Miller attacked her on August 14th strangling her to death before dumping her body outside of town. If you're a true crime fan, you'll know that serial killers are often difficult to catch. They usually pick victims at random, and this was back in a time when DNA wasn't a thing that could be used to link crimes together. Miller would be his own downfall, though. On August 16, 1978, he knocked on a random door in Lansing and asked to use the phone. A 14-year-old girl named Lisa Gilbert answered the door. Miller soon realized that she was home alone and decided to attack her. He asked her for a pencil and paper to write down a phone number and she allowed him to come inside. He immediately tied her up and began assaulting her. She was beaten and raped before her 13-year-old brother Randy came home. Not wanting to leave any witnesses, Miller tried to kill Randy but Randy apparently had balls of steel and confronted the attacker, giving Lisa time to escape outside. Lisa was completely naked aside from the nylon stockings that had been used to bind her and a necktie that had been used as a gag, so neighbors quickly put together that something was wrong. During this time, Miller had managed to choke Randy until he lost consciousness and stabbed him several times. Thankfully though, Randy survived. 
Miller tried to flee the scene in his car, but a handful of people took notice of him and wrote down his license plate number and a description of his car. Police were able to track him down and arrest him. If you paid any attention during this episode, you'll know that Michigan stopped executing people long ago. So the most Miller could have gotten is life without parole. Donald Jean Miller was given a 10 to 15 year sentence for the manslaughter of Martha Sue Young. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Miller was given a fucking plea deal in exchange for the locations of the other bodies. I'm torn on this issue. I understand wanting closure for the other victims' families, but is it really worth this psychopath being back out on the streets again in 15 years? He'll just kill again. I think that's been made perfectly clear. Thankfully, by the grace of someone's God, Miller was charged and convicted of raping Lisa Gilbert and attempting to kill her brother Randy. He was given an additional 30 to 50 years for this crime. In 1994, he was convicted of having a weapon in his cell that could have been used to strangle someone. This got him 20 to 40 more years. Kind of fucked up, isn't it? Murdering a woman in cold blood because she rejected him only landed him 10 to 15 in the slammer, but possessing a cord-like device in his prison cell got him more than double that. There are clearly no last words or last meals to be found in this case. I looked Miller up in the offender database and he is no longer listed as being incarcerated. He was denied parole in 2022, and his next application was supposed to become available in 2027, but he's not in the system anymore. If he serves his full sentence, he will be released in March of 2031. If he's dead, then we don't have to worry about any more parole hearings. I know this one's gone a little long, but I owe you guys a last meal. It's my job. Of course, this means we'll be traveling across state lines. It's an older case, but still just as fucked up as you've probably come to expect if you've been here before. Raymond Fernandez was born in the territory of Hawaii in December of 1914. His parents were from Spain, but had come to Hawaii for what I can only assume was a better life. After Fernandez was born, the family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. At some point during his teenage years, Fernandez went to work for his uncle in Spain. While here, he married a woman named Encarnacion Robles. They had four children together. During World War II, Fernandez served in the Spanish Merchant Navy and also did some work for a British intelligence service. Europe just wasn't his thing, though, apparently. After boarding a ship headed back to the U.S., a steel hatch fell on him and caused a severe head injury. His frontal lobe was damaged. If you know anything about brain injuries, which I unfortunately do, you'll know that this area of the brain is responsible for social interactions and any damage to it can make a person odd, I guess is the best way to say that. Fernandez got out of the hospital and stole some clothes, which landed him a year in the slammer. During this time, his cellmate converted him to a belief in black magic and voodoo. He'd later claim that black magic made him irresistible to women. I've somehow never been incarcerated, so I can't say exactly what it is that makes inmates susceptible to religious conversions, but, uh, what the fuck? Fernandez abandoned his family when he came to the U.S. and ended up answering a Lonely Hearts ad back in 1947. This was the 1940s equivalent to Tinder. The woman he'd found was named Martha Beck. At the time their paths crossed, she was an unemployed single mother. Beck was born Martha Jewel Seabrook in May of 1920 down in Florida. Oh boy, here we go. Because of a glandular problem, I'm going to try real hard not to put a Family Guy clip in here, Beck was overweight and went through puberty early. 
She was raped as a child by her brother and beaten by her mother as a consequence for this. As a teenager, Beck ran off and joined a traveling circus. This story has fucking everything, I'm telling you. After finishing school, the young woman studied nursing. Apparently back in this time, employers could deny you a job because of your weight. She struggled to find work. Eventually, she became an undertaker's assistant and helped prep female bodies for burial. After this, she moved to California and worked in an army hospital as a nurse. Do you guys remember Christina Riggs, that morbidly obese monster I talked about all the way back in episode 4 who murdered her kids? Martha Beck is giving off the same fucking vibes. Even kind of looks like her. Beck got pregnant while living in California, but the baby's father wouldn't marry her. Remember, this is back when getting knocked up before marriage was looked down upon. For whatever reason, Beck went back to Florida and claimed that her baby's father had been killed in the Pacific War. She had the entire town convinced that she'd suffered a tragic loss. Pretty quickly after her daughter was born, she'd get pregnant again by a bus driver in Pensacola. His name was Alfred Beck. She actually married this guy, but they were divorced within six months. It was soon after her son was born that she posted a Lonely Hearts ad in the newspaper and ended up meeting Raymond Fernandez. The couple spent a little bit of time together in Florida before Fernandez went home to New York. After being fired from her job, Beck made the snap decision to move up north. She showed up on her boyfriend's doorstep with her kids and took on the role of a doting partner. After Fernandez confessed to her about his criminal enterprises, she sent her kids to the Salvation Army so she could take care of him without the kids getting in the way. Mother of the fucking year, goddamn. Fernandez used his voodoo powers to charm women he met through newspaper ads into giving him money and valuables. Beck posed as his sister to help lure other women into the house. Sometimes she'd tell people that her brother didn't live there full-time and was just visiting. Beck was a very jealous woman. She wouldn't allow the victims to consummate their relationships with Fernandez. On one occasion, Beck came home to find Fernandez in bed with a woman named Janet Fay. She responded by hitting Janet in the head with a hammer. Fernandez then strangled the woman to death. Janet's family became suspicious when she disappeared, but the couple had already fled New York. The pair traveled to Wyoming Township, Michigan. Are we really doing this shit again? Find better names for things. And stayed with a 28-year-old woman named Delphine Downing. Delphine was a widow who had a two-year-old daughter named Raynell. That's such a pretty name. People have gotten so lazy with naming their kids these days. On February 28, 1949, Delphine became agitated and Fernandez gave her sleeping pills in an attempt to chill her out. Raynell could tell something was wrong with her mom and began to cry, which sent Beck into a rage. This resulted in her strangling the toddler. She survived this, thankfully. Fernandez was worried that Delphine would become suspicious if she saw bruises on her child when she woke up, so... He shot her. Beck and Fernandez stayed in Delphine's house for several days after she was killed. This poor little girl, so young but so aware of what was going on around her, she knew something was up with her mom and began crying again. Beck snapped and drowned her in a tub of water. The couple buried both bodies in the basement. Neighbors became suspicious and reported Delphine and her daughter missing. Police arrived at the house on March 1st and arrested the couple. Fernandez confessed, but later went back on this and tried to claim he only did it to protect his girlfriend. There were 17 murders this couple were suspected of committing. Neither of them exercised their right to remain silent or get an attorney. Fernandez told investigators, I'm no average killer. Both of them ended up signing a 73-page confession after being convinced that they wouldn't be handed over to the state of New York. They were happy to stay in Michigan, where there was no death penalty. 
I'm going to tell you something right now that you probably already know, but it needs to be drilled into everyone's head. The cops can and will lie to you to get a confession. They will manipulate the fuck out of you to get you to tell them what they want to hear. Even if you're just a witness or they think you might know something about someone else, they will fucking lie to you. Don't talk to the cops. After a few conversations with the governor of New York, a deal was struck. Kent County, Michigan would waive criminal charges in the murders of Delphine and her daughter and extradite the couple back to New York to face trial for Janet Faye's murder. I won't bore you with the details, but the trial was a fucking circus, full of outbursts from both the defendants and the prosecutors. They were both found guilty and sentenced to death. This was back when New York was still actually punishing criminals. Raymond Martinez Fernandez and Martha Jewel Beck were executed by electrocution on March 8, 1951. I'm grateful that Michigan had enough sense to send these monsters back to a place that would properly punish them for their despicable actions. Martha Beck was a gross person, apparently inside and out. Raymond Fernandez was just fucked up in the head, maybe from the brain injury or maybe from something else. Fernandez used his last words to say, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What do the public know about love? His last meal was an onion omelet, chocolate, french fries, and a Cuban cigar. That's fucking hilarious. Beck's last words were, What does it matter who is to blame? My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? Her last meal was fried chicken, specifically requested no wings, a lettuce and tomato salad, and french fries. Holy shit, that was a long one. Michigan is a crime-riddled shithole in today's time and is notorious for not doing a damn thing about it. But I'm happy to have found some cases that weren't just gang violence and robberies gone wrong. If you enjoyed this episode, go outside and yell about it. I don't care if it's 3 a.m., go outside and wake your neighbors up to tell them how much you like my murder stories. Share my shit on your internet. I'm available on Odyssey and most podcast apps, but you can also find me on Rumble where you'll get my cobbled together news videos in addition to murder stories. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'll be back hopefully next week with another Midwestern mess, but remember, it's December and that means I live at work for an indeterminate amount of time. So, yeah, I'm doing my best. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.